Hi, this is Noel T. Manning II. Thanks for joining us right here on Cinema Scene. We talk movies each week right here on WGWG.org, and we appreciate you tuning in. Sometimes we uh, feature movie reviews, and other times we have uh, filmmakers. And just very, very happy today to be talking to Mitch Costin. Uh, Mitch is... I tell you, you've been involved in filmmaking in some capacity going back to the 80s in feature filmmaking, and uh, you've got this documentary, one of the most talked about documentaries of 2019, uh, and for any film lover, uh, you've, they've got to check out the documentary Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. So we're going to talk about your your love of film, your history in the film industry, and uh, and also this uh, this incredible documentary that dives into things that we have got to know about the impact of sound on film. So, Mitch, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Noel. It's great to be here. Well, I'll tell you, um, and, and also we, we don't want to leave this out, you are also a professor uh, of film studies as well. So uh, you've been able to, to be involved in the film, uh, film industry and uh, the film teaching aspect of it for, for quite a long time. When was it that uh, that you realized that you had a love of film? Not necessarily that you were going to pursue it, but at what point was there a love of film in your life? Well, it's so funny because as a kid, I think my parents, I'm one of six kids, and um, we were very active and outdoors kind of people. And my parents always encouraged us to be outside. But um, I do know we all love to sing. And so when the sound of music came out, <laughs> I think we memorized all the songs, and every time my parents would have somebody come over, the, the four girls would always be singing songs with hand gestures. And the, <laughs> so that was that. And then I don't think it was until college when I took an Italian, I think it was an Italian and French cinema class. And, you know, what? I was so blown away by, I saw a documentary by Renee Claire called um, Night and Fog about, uh, oh gosh, uh, about concentration camps and yeah. I think I had like a nervous breakdown um, my friends had to stay up with me I was so disturbed by the images and also the way the narrator just makes it sound he starts out talking about the architectural structure of the of concentration camps and it was just so disturbing that um, yeah it was the impact of it and I think that that might be the start of it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah the power of a film narrative, whether it's done through visuals or whether it's done through uh, the, the combination of that and, and whatever audio is provided, it is so powerful. And, uh, you know, I think back to, uh, you know, hearing my dad talk about uh, going to, you know, movies in the, in the late 30s and 40s and just the impact uh, of cinema, what that had on culture. And it's continued to expand and continue to change. And as technology has advanced, uh, the realism that we experience, not just from a visual, but also that audio impact is unbelievable. You go back and look at you know, films of the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, films that would, would utilize you know, just the, this bank of, of sound effects uh, that you would hear over and over and over again. And, and then now to see the creation of that and you dive into film composers who are actually using music to create sound, not just not necessarily score, but sound as well. The the technological advances just continue to blow me away, and I know you've been uh, a part of that for so long. And uh, 
you were talking about in college, sitting there, you know, watching this this film that this documentary that just kind of had this impact on you. When did you decide, hmm, maybe there's something for me that I can pursue as a career here? Oh, well, I think what I did was I, I studied art history as an undergraduate in college. And then um, my senior, then I started to think the theory was I thought these guys would be rolling over in their graves if they knew <laughs> the detail that which we were, you know, that we got into the, the minutiae. Right. So I took photography my senior year. I got into black and white photography. And then when I came out, I knew I wouldn't have very much money. And so I was from the Boston area. And so I moved to San Francisco. And then I, I took classes at Berkeley Film Institute, which ah. was 16 millimeter. And we do these commercials, these like public access, public um, promotional things like, you know, fair housing and things like that. And that would show at like two and three in the morning, I think. And then I decided to apply to graduate school. And I um, went to um, uh, USC, actually. And so I went down to um came down to Southern California and um, but I'll tell you the last thing I thought I would do is sound because <laughs> when I was taught I wasn't connecting sound with story and I love story and that's why I went to film school and um, and I, I just wasn't so I came out and I wanted to be a picture editor and okay. sound always kind of almost gave me panic attacks <laughs> and because it, it just felt something technical you do at the end kind of sew it all up you know and to make it sound like a decent but um i wasn't thinking about it creatively and um then it was then a friend of mine i still i had all my classes done i was finished school except i had my thesis film i was which was a documentary and it was a short doc and then I was I needed money to finish it and when a friend called up who was now a sound editor he said Midge none of the union guys will touch 16 millimeter I came into and he taught me how to cut uh, effects and he cut the dialogue and um, on that very first show because I was the only one cutting effects I, I thought oh my gosh I've got to figure out how to make how to set the mood and the tone and how do you reflect character and you know with sound and how do i reflect the plot points and it just started this whole way of thinking and then i think because i was always in chorus or choir um and i when i was young and i played the guitar and um i think because i kind of had a musical background that it just clicked with me and um suddenly i was just off and running and doing um you know, d doing sound and um, absolutely loved it. And as you said, I was, it was the 80s and, you know, the, the later 80s and then the 90s. And, and so surround sound was really coming into its own. And, um, yeah, and I just, like, I was having so much fun, you know, yeah. doing that. So it was, yeah, it was and, great. And some of those films, uh, and you've, you've served as sound editor and you've also served as sound effects editor. And uh, some of those films that I'm seeing on IMDb, and, and you'll have to correct me if these are incorrect, but Days of Thunder, which a North Carolina uh, shot film in many, many ways, uh, that's, mm -hmm. talk about sound, oh my gosh, that, that, that definitely yeah. had sound and sound effects in it as well. So that is one of your films, correct? Yes, and that was my first union, that was my first big picture here I was on the Paramount lot, and, um, and, I, and, and I was given the, my, my, one of the things that I caught on that effects-wise was I would always get the bad guy's car. And the bad guy in that movie is anyone who was racing against Tom Cruise, <laughs> I would have his engine. And, um, and it was so fun because we were doing, you do these crazy things, you know, and it's not just, 
you know, the sound of engines, just like it says in the documentary, uh, C.C. Hall talks about Top Gun, that it can, they can kind of sound boring in a way, but you know, if you want to make them sound big. So when they kind of flash across the screen, it's like you're putting in, you know, animal growls and things underneath the engine sound. So you don't really hear those as that. But I think also the way that our brain processes sound or the way our bodies process sound is just like it hits us in our gut. And just like we hear those sounds, even though we don't, we might not identify them. And, and it's like, you know, we're still cave people and we want to run. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, you know, you sit on the edge of your seat and sometimes even if you do a real quick shot to something and you want to surprise the audience would even put like air explosions or something underneath. And again, not so that you hear it as an explosion, but just as a sound that would like set you on edge, you know, and, um, and I, and I also had all the shots that were like the aerials where the cars were going around the, the, the track. And, um, but they also, the CC hall was, I was just talking to her the other day and she was saying how they, I remember they went out and recorded and they went, she went all over recording NASCAR. Yeah. And, um, that was pretty wild. Get all these cars. You know, I think about movies like that and then movies like some of the action films that, that are on your list, like uh, the Crimson Tide, um, Crimson Tide, The Rock, Con Air, Armageddon. There is this kind of tunnel of sound that it seems it hits you from every direction and that, that kind of bombastic action-fueled and filled sound that you cannot escape and you cannot escape it in a good way. And at what point do you think that the impact of sound design really started mattering to the uh, to the audience that's watching these mm-hmm. films? Well, you know, people say, when I say them in sound, it used to be that people would talk about, think I was dealing with music because they, they weren't even aware that I was doing sound. I, there's a lot more um, awareness about that sound is affecting it. I think people understand that. Um, and I think because they have home systems and maybe right. they set up. But the surround thing, I think it really was in the 90s where it started to make a difference and, um, or, you know, people knew. Because really, uh, it's so funny, but when you look back at the movies, like in the, even in the 70s, you know, there, some there were still mono films, like um, Walter Murch, you know, working on The Godfather. Right. It's a brilliant, um, brilliant sound design, but it was mono when it first came out. Now, none of us hear that because they, of course, made a 5.1 sound track you know probably decades ago but um so we don't we're not hearing it that way but that's how it was and and those movies were still great so there were still great movies but it's just and it's because the sound design is good and it doesn't have to be uh, and i know that people watch things on their small on computers or their even their phones or you know ipads and things that is but as long as you have the sound that's what matters i mean the sound especially the smaller the screen gets the more important sound is to bring the emotion and the impact i think for the because you're not getting that big picture um yeah i think that's important yeah i agree and, and i've talked to the students um about you know, you, you've always, you know, heard lights, camera, action. I'm like, yeah, but don't forget sound. You know, <laughs> it's, know. Not, it's not well, just the know, lights, just, camera, action. You got to have the sound. I know. And in some ways, Noel, that's really, I mean, we, you know, we feel like, oh, no one thinks about us. And, and on the set, it's so funny because, you know, on a huge production, there's maybe 100 people on the set. And there's only three of those people are responsible for sound, maybe four, you know. And you, 
and you've got like a boom person, you've got a recordist, and then you've got somebody pulling the cables. There's yeah. utility. And, and so, you know, you wait for hours for the lighting. And then the minute that someone says, oh, could we just have, hold on for sound? And then everybody goes, oh, breathe, you know, so annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> they, have, they have to wait for sound. And it's a joke. Yeah. You know, everybody makes jokes about it. But it's, and it's so funny, but it's because everybody else is thinking about what's inside that frame. And then the hard part is not only is it only three or, you know, people or something, but doing sound, but they also, they can't control what's out, outside the frame. Yes. And they have to deal with that, you know, so planes going by and cars going yes. by and people talking and, you know, so it's so funny. So it's a really tough job. And on the set, those are, that's the performance, you know, actors, actors, I mean, they study voice. And sometimes the most important thing is not even the dialogue that they're speaking. How are they breathing? If someone's about to cry or somebody's afraid, that breath is so important. And that's something very intimate. And, you know, as Doug Vaughn says in the movie, it's like, you know, you're ten, with that boom mic, you're 10, 10 you know, inches away from their mouth. It's a very kind of intimate thing. And, and it's so important. But still, it's how our brains process sound we just don't have awareness we think it comes with the picture as it does in real life you know yeah and and, and, and we want you know when we're watching something uh, on screen you know if it's a if it's a scene that's taking place in a restaurant if we don't hear that ambient sound of of waiters <laughs> walking in the background or some people kind of talking in the background it feels flat and so those yeah. are all things that you have to think about as well when you are putting these pieces together. Absolutely. And, you know, none of those people are talking in the background because they're trying to get a nice clean track of the main actors. And if it's not there, you know, it feels like a stage play or it feels like you, you start to feel like, oh, this is false. You know, right. so we need to put all that ambience in. We call that wall up when it's somebody's voice, because supposedly in the old days, people would just then record, just go walla, walla, walla. <laughs> I don't think, I don't know if they really, you know, if you tried to do that now with the kind of microphones we had, you would hear everybody <laughs> saying walla, walla, walla. Right. But I think you used to be able to do it. Um, so it's, it's funny, but yeah, we call that walla in the background, like, you know, restaurant walla or bar walla or, you know. Stadium wall. Exactly. Funny. Well, you, uh, a few years ago, I, I, I probably about what, 10 years ago, nine years ago, uh, back in 2010, you started thinking about this documentary. Is that right? Uh, the documentary is called Making yes. Waves The Art of Cinematic Sound. Yeah, so we started it 10 years ago. So my producing partner, Bobette Buster, approached me because she had met Gary Rydstrom. And the funny part was I started thinking about it over uh, in early 2000s, but when I started to research it, there was no such thing as fair use. And fair use allows us to use clips um, from movies, but if we had to pay the studios, that we, it, we, it would have been so expensive. And I knew that we, because I teach, I knew that we needed clips because you, need you need to show or, or hear, you know, what, is going on. So you need to show movies and um, you need to play them. And when I started to look into it, it, a friend of mine was doing a version, a film like this uh, called The Cutting Edge that was about about uh, editing, movie editing. And it took her two years to get the right. So I put it aside because I thought that's not really filmmaking to me. And I put it aside. And then when Bobette Buster approached me, she was, a produ she was teaching producing at USC and she knew that fair use 
um, had come about and said um, she had talked to Gary Rystrom, and Gary Rystrom said that he would be involved if if she contacted me and got me involved. So that's how it started. And then we brought on Karen Johnson, who had done a great documentary about um, a clip kind of documentary about uh, stunt women called Double Dare, which is really great. And um, she had the experience of doing a clip show. So we brought her on. So the three of us started to talk about it. And then we got an editor. And the editor at the time, because now it's nine years ago, was a student of mine. And um, and he started to cut something together that was like a proof of concept that we could show people and we could approach them. And, um, yeah, we started way back then. Wow. Now, the interviews we recorded were in 2013. Most of them we got um, between 2013 and 2016. Wow. And then when we were doing the research, we realized there was hardly anything on sound in the early days. That We missed that whole first generation. But luckily, there's that interview of Murray Spivak, um, that somebody did, like one of those entertainment shows, seems to have done, and Murray Spivak did a sound, they figured it's the first sound design kind of job almost on King Kong. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, we happened to just have that one, but he's the only one, only sound person of that first generation wow. that we even have. So. Wow. So, I, so we recorded 90 interviews wow. of people today, and we have like 200 hours worth of material. And uh, to get that down to 94 minutes, gosh, crazy. Yeah. Well, I've I've been, I've worked in some documentaries before. And so I I know the amount of uh, work that comes on the tail end of that. (laughs) You know, you can get all, you can do all of this work uh, to shoot it. And then, and then it kind of takes, will will take a life of its own after you start going back and looking at the footage and yes. and listening to the sound bites and realizing you know where the rich material is were there yes. were there elements that surprised you when you went back uh, and and started you know having these these things transcribed and started looking and listening to to what was being said well i think during the interviews sometimes we just got such precious um material and i loved the both walter merchant and um, ben Bird talk about being kids and working in sound. And I just knew, we just knew the editor too. David J. Turner is just brilliant the editor. And, um, you know, this is his first feature, and he, but he was just so sensitive to um, the stories, but to, to sound also. And he also composes music, and he's just like so wonderful. So we loved um, the story. And Ben Bird's home, I mean, not home, yeah, home movies kind of that he did, you know, movies that he made as a kid, but also in film school that were just so fun. And I thought, this is, this is what you want to capture is this. And I, and Walter Merch is a kid too, discovering a reel to reel tape recorder. And that says something about, you know, when you're a kid and you start to play, because then it turned out that most of the people, a lot of the sound designers, as kids, they had some kind of, rec- they had like reel-to-reel yeah. you know, tape. Yeah. I, and it turns out that I got one for Christmas on, in, when I was in fifth grade. And then wow. they were like, oh my gosh, I was doing the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all like playing with sound. And there's a thing about, you know, that 10,000 hours, you know, putting in your hours. But yes. also Walter Murch, I think, has a theory. And it might, I don't know what it comes from, but when, between the ages of like 10 and 14, whatever you do kind of for play, or as your work as a kid, you you know, there's a really good chance that you'll um, end up doing that as an adult, some form of it, yeah. or something related to it as an adult. And that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I'm the same way. I mean, there were things I did during that time period. I mean, I would take a, a, a tape recorder 
uh, into my my bedroom and I would get I had two uh, two record players and I would I would do radio. You know, I would be the DJ. Oh, wow. You know, I, I was oh, no- wow. yeah, yeah. I, I was Noel the Man Manning, and so I, <laughs> you know, I'm doing my own little radio shows. And uh, you know, a few years ago, my mom found some of those original cassettes <gasps> that oh, I had done, so and so great. and so you know, so here we are, you know, decades later, and in some capacity, I'm still doing that kind of thing, and still have this deep love of music and and sound yes. as well. And yes. uh, so, yeah, that, that makes a heck of a lot of sense that, that those yeah. things you find during that time can, can change your life and impact your life for years yes. later. Yeah, it's so fun. So I love that. The other thing that was like really that I feel like we kind of made history was uh, when I was doing the interview with Yoan Allen, who is the senior vice president of Dolby, he was the one that told us about Barbara Streisand, and she had no idea that she had the impact on the industry that she did in relation to sound. And what happened was, Yoan Allen was one of the top, I think, engineers for Ray Dolby, and they were just in music. So they they had figured out how to do a noise reduction. So you used to have, I remember this, you know, you could hear the system, whatever was recording, you always, like, it was recording itself in a way, and you could hear system noise. Yes. And so Dolby came along and it got quiet, you know, which is great because you can add sound design. You're not just trying to clean that all out. And, but, so Dolby um, was just in music, and it was, like, um, noise reduction and stereo. So they had figured out how to do that. So Yo and Alan went to Ray and said, Ray, what about, Ray Dolby, and said, what about, uh, getting into the movie <clears throat> and Ray said, well, you could go check it out. So Yoan was the very one that went around to the studio studios and asked, uh, do you want this system? And they all would listen politely and then say, yeah, it sounds good, but no, we don't really need that. And of course, why? Because they don't want to spend the money, yes. trans, you know, taking their whole mono system and turning it into <laughs> now a stereo, a Dolby stereo. So they said, no, no, no. And then Barbara Streisand was doing um, A Star is Born. Yes. And, of course, she is very particular about her music, and she wanted it to sound as good as possible, plus the crowds, the audiences. She wanted to have you feel like you were in the audience, like in a big concert. And Stanley Kubrick was doing um, Clockwork Orange. And they both said, now they're making lots of money for the studios and big, big, um, you know, directors. And they said yes. But Barbara Streisand thought that she was saying yes to a pro. A, a, she thought it was an option. She didn't know that she was getting them to change their whole system over. And then uh, Gary Kurtz and George Lucas were doing Star Star yeah, Wars and yes. were working on that. And they said, "Oh yes, we want that." And so those kind of three productions and the, those people are the ones who are responsible for kind of upgrading from mono, the general thing of mono to stereo, to Dolby stereo. Wow. And Barbara Streisand had no idea yeah. when we went to her. She was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, she had no <laughs> idea. She just thought it was already in, in, in place, you know? And so that was really cool. Yeah. And, and now when we think about theater, whether it's home theater or whether it's going to, to pay for a movie, Sound is as important to our experience uh, as the visuals, and and it always has been, but I think even more so now because the expectations are so high, and uh, you know theaters have had to spend the money as well to to make sure that they are pleasing the audiences. And so, what did you find out anything about how theaters had to respond to to this need and uh, the, these technological advances? 
We had some, we had um, Tom Tomlinson Holman, who is a colleague of mine at USC and wonder, wonderful person. He's in it very briefly now and just has a couple of lines, but that's what he created THX. Right. So it was really interesting that they started to, and it was really thinking about that's like the B chain. It's like the A chain would be the movie and everything itself. And then the B chain is when you put it out to, who are you putting it out yes, to? Yes. What is that system like? And so they started to have to pay attention to, you know, tune, tune um, theaters and make sure that someone would go and that it sounded good. And um, yeah, that became really important, you know, once we had surround sound and, you know, more sophisticated systems, which is funny because, you know, that's the problem at home. And I think where the advances have come, it's got to get easier to do, you know, surround sound like at home. Because I remember once going to my sister's at one of my sister's house and I thought why is the dialogue in the in the surrounds you know <laughs> so it can be complicated you right. know, it can be complicated and then how it gets delivered and sometimes you know that you have a different setting for like when it's a sports event right and, you know and all that so I think that um they'll, they'll figure out how to do it in a more um you know in an easier kind of way to set up but I, I do think that people care about do care about sound now there is more of a consciousness because we're used to that um yeah it became the standard really good sound yeah and so making uh, making waves the art of cinematic sound is your debut documentary yet you've been in in film for a little while um do, <laughs> do you find yourself uh, wanting to pursue more documentaries or what, what are your thoughts on that well yes i think so i'll tell you you people think you know when you I get interviewed as though I made the film all on my own. I think what I love about filmmaking is it's so collaborative. And I always say it's because I grew up in a big family and my parents were so great about, um, we all were kind of help each other out and we all strategized to help each other, whether it was like a paper that you had to write or, you know, speech contest, or we were all um, competitive swimmers and you know and 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 so it's like i love working with a group of people and the woman that was the director of photography shot my we met in film school and she shot my thesis film wow and um so many i mean my supervising sound editors yeah. were my students and they're the two women up at uh they're at skywalker sound now and allison newman the um composer was um uh someone that was at USC, she was at the Thornton School, and she worked with our students, and it's just so much fun. And, and Bobette Buster, as I mentioned, and Karen Johnson, my my producing partners, and it was just that. Uh, and then Tom Miller, we had. He's a colleague of mine at USC. He's both a great filmmaker himself, documentary filmmaker himself, and it was just like what a team. And I love working with other people because you don't have to come up with all the ideas yourself. It's really you're working, you know, with a really talented group of people. So I definitely can see myself going on to um, make, you know, more documentaries. And one thing is that we have so much material. We could do like a really great series on yes. this sound. And then I'm just thinking of other things that I might want to do because it is, um, it's very hard work and, um, uh, but it's, you know, it's, I, I, I really enjoy it. Well, your your documentary uh, received a Critics' Choice Award for for best debut director as well. So, congratulations uh, on that for that nomination. That's uh, yeah, well well you. deserved. Uh, you know, you're talking about wanting to kind of go on and think about other things relating to this. A, a few years ago, there was a documentary that looked at specifically looked at score and the impact of musical yeah. score, and that was a, a documentary that 
you know, really did incredibly well. And that, uh, the work from that actually um, planted the seeds for these podcasts where composers come on, you know, each week and, uh, and, and, and talk about the score. Do you see something like that maybe happening where there's a podcast where you can bring in, you know, sound engineers, sound designers, uh, effects artists to come and talk about their craft? Is that something that is, is a possibility? Well, you know, there's a great podcast that Soundworks Collection does. It's Soundworks, and I have the podcast that listen to it, and they, and so that's really wonderful. And they also do it in conjunction with, so that's Michael Coleman, and he does a great job um, doing that. And then also Glenn Kaiser, who's the director of the Dolby Institute, um, they do great work together and do a great podcast. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's more, there's room for more. Um, but yeah, uh, they, I, I love their work and, um, they've been, you know, so, so, and, and, and they, they do great stuff. I'll show it to my students even like things that yeah. they do. So they, they keep you up on the latest, like whatever movie is out, they've got an interview with someone. So it's really fantastic. Well, wonder, I'll have to check those out cause I am not familiar with those. So I, I will have to check, check those yeah. out. Well, I, I'm really, oh, gl- I'm really glad that you mentioned, uh, the collaborative effort because that is, um, that is so important. And uh, ever since college, uh, I have, you know, decided at that point I'm going to sit through the credits because I really got a, a, a chance to appreciate the impact of all the people that work behind the scenes that, that their names are not on the movie poster, you know, and uh, yes. sit through the credits. And, and that really all yes. happened, happened to me when I was um, I got a chance to serve as an intern and then ended up working as a PA on Last of the Mohicans when it was being shot in North oh, Carolina. Wow. And so it was just, you know, an hour away from, from campus. And I ended up spending, you know, the summer working on that film. And I, my, my appreciation got so much deeper when you get a chance to meet the people behind the scenes. And so I always encourage people to, to stay for the credits, sit through that because every single name on that screen has an impact and even some that don't make it on the screen have an impact in making that thing come to life. And so I'm really glad yeah. that you spoke to that because that's something that I, I highly, highly um, uh, am an advocate of. Yes. And you know, you always learn something because it's not until the end sometimes where they show where it was shot. Yes. And I love that. And the, <laughs> and the co-productions and all of that. And you learn so much about it. Um, I, and of course, this whole film is about people, you know, below the line, meaning the credits come after the um, right. after the movie. And it's so funny, you know, because I go to documentaries and they always say, you know, a lot of times I think when they do the Q&As after, they shut off the credits and I'm like, please run. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes if it's short, if it's short, we'll say, um, you can turn the music down and we can start setting up the chairs. But, yeah. you know, I always try to, I want the credits to roll. Yes. Uh, it's really important. But we have long credits because we had to put in all, we had to list all the, um, that fair use. So all the clips. But I think that's so instructional. It's like, I always say that to my students, like, look at these credits because that's what you need to do to get the right to use clips. And um, it, just like this big wall of white comes up with all the clips and the, the um, you know, the Getty images and all that. Yes. Now you have to pay, we have to pay for anything that's in kind of an archive, like Getty images, Pond5, all right. of those we paid for. And it's like the clips. So we did have a, a team of lawyers actually looking to make sure that we use that correctly, which is you set it up and then you have to transform the clip in some way and you can't use it 
just for entertainment, right. letting it run and run and run. You right, know? So right. That was really, yeah, it's really instructional when you watch credits, I think. Well, I tell you, Mitch, you have been amazing, and I and I've taken up way more time than than you probably have. But uh, Mitch, oh no, I love it. Oh, uh, Mitch Costin, I'd love to have you back at some point and and talk more about Absolutely. about your work and just about film. Um, the documentary is called "Making Waves: The Art of Cinematic Sound." Uh, it is a feature-length documentary, so a little over an hour and a half, and it's well worth every second of it. Highly recommend it. And uh, if you're looking for a companion piece, there are a few other companion pieces. If you just love music and if you love score and if you love editing, there are some great documentaries out there to give you a feel for the film industry and for those that, uh, that make it happen behind the scenes. Uh, any final thoughts or final words you want to share about this documentary? Just that I think one of the things that I hope people come away with is not only felt the, the artistry of sound in movies, but that you appreciate, you know, your hearing and your sense of, of, um, you know, sound and listening. And I hope that it, it gives people an appreciation of, of that, you know, um, in a, in a bigger sense, you know, that, um, like I love to hike and I love to be out in nature, but even when I'm in the city or something, just really an awareness of how lucky we are to, to have our hearing and, um, and you know, the beautiful sense of sound. Absolutely. It's, it's an amazing documentary, and it takes you through, uh, through the history uh, of sound uh, on cinema. Yeah. The uh, website is makingwavesmovie.com, where you can find out more information. Any other uh, places you want to send people to find out more about you or more about this uh, film? No, that's really a great place, and also it will tell you if the because we are going with a distributor who's putting it out into art houses and smaller theaters because we really want people to if they can see it in theaters, that would be great. And then, at sometime in twenty twenty early twenty twenty, we'll have it. It will be streaming, but uh, it's really fun to see it in the theater. Awesome, Midge Costin, our guest right here on Cinema Scene on WGWG.org. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks to all of those who uh, take the time to listen to us uh, each week as well. You can always email us uh, info at WGWG.org. And uh, you can also tweet me uh, at NT, I'm sorry, Noel T. Manning uh, on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Noel T. Manning II for Cinema Scene and WGWG. That is a wrap. <laughs>